Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Jennifer Searle, strategist, futurist, a fellow writer, president and founder of Agility 3R, adjunct professor at RIT, and co-author of Strategy Leadership in the Soul, an Upstate Founders Playbook. Phew, okay, that was a lot. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Yay. I am super, super excited um, because we have exchanged so many messages um, in the last few years on Twitter and uh, social media. And I've always admired the way you think it's so different than, than I would say most other folks that we encounter on social. Um, so I want to know a little bit more before we start going into everything that you're doing. And that's a lot that you're doing. Can you share with us a little bit our your journey? Um, what you've done and how do you get to where you are? So I want to, th I thank you so much for being on the program. And, um, and I, I do love Twitter as a medium to determine who it is that you actually want to meet in real life. So my hope is that this program gets me one step closer to a real handshake and a real hug, which is great. Um, I have been lucky enough to have lived my life like a scavenger hunt, um, like many uh, outliers out there at a pretty complex childhood. And in it, um, there were the, the kind of constraints I had as a child were more around survival. Um, there were no expectations that I should be anyone or that I should follow a lineage or that I should be even successful. So I think um, when, when someone is given freedom to survive, um, I think two things happen. One is that their ability to observe is heightened. And the second is that um, it's truly freer to really able to live like a scavenger hunt where here's the next clue, here's the next clue, here's the next clue. So I don't want to bore anyone with my life story, um, except for the fact that what's scalable and valuable to anybody listening here is that if you're open to, um, if you're in a situation where you're feeling stagnant or stuck, begin to say, if this was a scavenger hunt, what is the next clue? Um, so many times we start thinking of the end point, which is an important thing, but we also have to toggle and say, what is the next most important step to take? And uh, I know that the reason I'm here with you now is that I've just taken a lot, a lot of really good steps and really kept my eyesight on um, what's opening up for me. What am I interested in? Where should I pay more attention? You know, and that has led me from being a call center manager to being uh, a consultant to being um, a Vistage CEO roundtable master chair to um, to doing great work and meeting people like you. Wow, I need to remember that. If this was a scavenger hunt, what is your next clue? Um, I think that applies to a lot of things we do in life, isn't it? Just be open, be curious, be open-minded, um, which seems like a lost art um, in, in many circumstances nowadays. But speaking of open-minded and be curious, that reminds me of innovation, right? Because that, that's what we need as a secret, not so secret ingredient to be able to innovate, to do something different. And when we think about innovation, we think about funding, 
And it's not a secret that a lot of the startup funding has gone to Silicon Valley, Boston, New York City, right? The three states by the coast. And it's so lopsided that so many efforts have been made throughout the past few years to just even level the playing field a little bit, share the wealth, if you will. There are a few famous programs, including Rise of the Rest uh, by Steve Case that looks for opportunities outside the hubs or some would call flyover states. I've lived in a few of those. Yeah. And I know you are super passionate about upstate New York. That's the other thing we have in common. I love upstate. Oh, that's great. Right. And it's a beautiful place. It's amazing people. Although it's not typically a place that we would think of, right? When we think about desirable places for innovation, entrepreneurship, startup ideas. So tell us a little bit more about your efforts and how can our audience get involved? Absolutely. Um, so I'm accidentally here, meaning um, I'm from Denver, Colorado, and I went to Boulder, Colorado, which is now getting a lot of credit for an innovation hub with Brad Field and all these wonderful people. And when, when I was there, it was just where I went to school, and it was a cool place. I was in incredible shape. shape. As a matter of fact, um, Marshall, the area that just got hit with the fires, was an area that I did a ton of mountain biking it's actually where I decided to get married, you know, who, who I was dating at the time. I decided to marry on a hike out there or on a bike ride. Um, I, you know, chose my major. <laughs> like, like it's, it's crazy how just talking about it right now makes me, one, feel really passionate about um, the people that recently lost their homes, as well as the fact that Boulder is known as an innovation hub. Um, a couple of, of things is that what most people don't realize is I, I innovation just kind of is one of those words. I think you actually had done a post around um, words that we wish that we wouldn't hear again. Do you remember when you did that wonderful post? Oh, yeah. There are a few buzzwords I want to hear. Yeah, I think innovation <laughs> is one of them um, because, you know, initially the word innovation came from the 13th century word novation. Um, it was, appeared in legal text as a term for renewing a contract. So it really meant a new version of a contract. And then in the 16th century, um, people were thought to rewrite religious texts. And so the new contract of living, right? If you think of religion as a contract of life. Um, so people that were considered innovators in the 16th century were actually jailed or even put to death, right? So um, the idea of a new idea being sexy, sought after brilliance is, is actually relatively recent in history. Um, and the reason I kind of am allergic to the term is that I think a lot of people hear the term and they think innovation is for technologists or it's for entrepreneurs and startups. And what I'm passionate about is, again, I got my degree in existential philosophy, um, which is really about coherence. And um, what makes existential philosophy different than regular philosophy is that it's really about how the environment shapes context, right? So I exist in a context. I don't necessarily have an essence, um, which again, I'm like, oh God, you know, this is so disconnected. I need to be better <laughs> at threading these beads together. But um, so, so coherence matters a lot to me. And the idea that innovation um, came from a derogatory term is important because today I say that innovators are people that are incredible at pattern recognition, 
have incredible observation skill and have the ability to articulate what they see, right? And so if you look at Brad, uh, I think it's um, Boyd Cohen has this um, 18 vertices smart city um, that has, you know, smart governance, smart people, smart mobility, smart environment. Um, every single one of those vertices requires a person in a job to be a great pattern recognizer, to actually be able to add context, to have a point of view of what's needed or what's missing or what would be optimizing. You know, so I think um, what I care about is that when people think of me, they think of how can I be a more observant person? And as a result of being a more observant person, you're gonna have different ideas. And those different ideas right now are being called being an innovator. And I have no idea what they're gonna be called in a decade. Is that, <laughs> is that too much information? No, 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 it's interesting. I actually never knew the, the context of, of the word and, and the history behind it. It's fascinating. Because um, for me, you know, whenever I, I think of innovation, I, I think of, um, for better or worse, you know, people that, that come up with new things. I, I think of, um, of uh, people with propellers on their head. <laughs> yes, yes. And, right. and, and it's, it's like, you know, I always thought, oh, you know, coming with something new. But, but I like your definition of that. It's, you know, what, what are the attributes of, of innovators and what does it actually mean and, and how we came to where we are right now. Um, I, I also like when you're saying, you know, add context, because that's something that we don't think about, right? We always think about people who innovate or are coming up with something new or, you know, just, uh, I don't know, like lightning strikes and boom, here you go. But it's not always like that because oftentimes it's, it's a step process, is looking at what's not working and then creating something or optimizing it, making it better um, instead of copying, pasting and 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 changing the color. <laughs> so, yes, that's right. So, uh, so I, I teach um, exploring innovation for Rochester Institute of Technology and it's for the School of Individualized Studies. And um, the reason they have me there is they really like the idea of cross-pollinated innovation. But one of the things I'm most excited about is that the students in my class have to come up with their own definition of innovation. Um, and I, I think the idea of coming up with a sentence that is self-defining is a great exercise. So in, in, a, in a way, um, they're accidentally in a branding exercise. Um, and I can send you, um, I have a PDF that has four of the student samples that I do have permission to distribute. And it's, it's really lovely to see the many ways innovation can be defined. In fact, if someone's listening and it has a team meeting coming up, I would say, ask the question, what is your definition of innovation? And then give them a week because what happens with people that process quickly, like you and me and Brad and, um, you know, Bradley, I think we process information so quick. And for people to be able to participate, they often need time. They need time to think. They need time to explore an idea. And um, one of the mistakes I think we make is we reward people for like knowing, oh, what's your definition of innovation? Well, boom, here's an idea, you know. 
And unfortunately, you know, like the world is designed for extroverts right now. And a lot of the brilliance is going to come from people that actually need, you know, like, like fine wine. They need some time to sit with an idea anyway. But it is really a great exercise and it's illuminating. It is indeed the case. I think it is important too because then it doesn't become a check in the box exercise. People actually think through what we're doing. And I almost feel like when you when you set the thing about we move so fast, everything jumps so quickly, it almost doing us a disservice on things that actually should take time because it is okay to take time. It is okay to think through things before we act. And we are just way too quick to act nowadays, especially given the social media and, and all of that is very easy to respond and critique rather than thinking through the context of why someone say what they say. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, Theo, you make such a beautiful point there. You know, I think that one of the greatest disservices to collective intelligence has been TED Talks. Um, the reason is that um, the idea of creating entertainment with thinking and really important concepts and created performers out of, out of educators um, is a mistake. Um, it, it creates an illusion of access to information. Being exposed to information does not mean integration, right? I have um, a couple of posts that I read and I've read for over a decade every month, I reread them. Um, and I, you know, I'm a smart person. I think that I'm well read. Um, I don't integrate real well. I need, I need to hear repetition, repetition, like a vitamin. Like, you know, I have to take a vitamin C every day because it doesn't stay in my system long enough to be healthy for me. I think of ideas that way. Um, and I think, I think that our ability to have time to learn and the idea also to learn to be clumsy, you know, actually in my class on Monday, we, we started last Monday. Um, I asked the students to write their definition of innovation in the chat box because it's on Zoom. And they were very surprised to see that I had actually published them for the Wednesday's class. And, they, and, you know, and one of the students was like, well, I didn't know that you were going to do that. And I said, well, I'm not expecting you to have a perfect definition. You didn't know what I was going to be asking you. You know, we need to get comfortable saying, here's my first thought and know that it's going to be perfected. And it was so, um, gosh, he's going to listen to this and I'm probably going to be embarrassed by talking about it. But um, the idea that I'm embarrassed that it wasn't perfect when it was the first time a person asked a question made me sad because learning, the first experience of learning is loss. We're like, I didn't know that. Instead of feeling like, oh, this is cool. Our first physiological experience is sadness. If there's information out there that I don't have, am I safe? You know, so we just need more of a tolerance to actually create an environment where people can learn and be clumsy and have time to think and iterate. I almost feel like a lot of that has to do with how digitally connected we are 24-7. I feel it with, with my kids. They're so young. They're not 
exposed to social media. They know what it is. They know I use it for work, but they don't have accounts yet. And yeah. I feel like that's going to be a battle coming. Thinking through when I grew up back, ooh, almost 50 years ago now, I lived in a, in a state where you make mistakes or people say things about you, but that stays in school. It doesn't follow you home. Nowadays, kids live and grow up in an environment where they make a certain comment, it stays because it's on digital. It follows you outside of school because people say mean things about people on social media. And I don't know if that's necessarily healthy because we give them all the tools, but yet we don't teach them how they're supposed to behave and how they're supposed to use these tools. And we certainly lack the safeguard to keep them sane or mentally healthy, at least. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really glad you brought that up. I, I wasn't into technology until 2011 and um, my son, who at the time was um, four years old, said, mommy, does your heart remote control people? And that was so innocent. And, you know, it was one of those things I was dropping him off at daycare. I was running late for a meeting and he drops this bomb. And I'm like, that's a profound question, Griffin. You know, does your heart remote control people? And it was at that moment, he's now 15. It was at that moment that I realized my son will never know the difference between reality and virtual reality, right? So this is in 2011 where um, he gave me the gift of that insight. And I thought, wow, you know, like he... He, you know, and this is before the metaverse and all this jazz. It's just like, you know, he will never know the difference. And um, and now there's um, all this information about how there's so much more anxiety. Um, people um, are not able to actually hold an idea for more than 90 seconds. And, you know, so I think our ability to think long term and have the ability to put ourselves in a story, in a context, those are all things that make us different than robots. They're things that make us different than an algorithm. And, and unfortunately, it takes enormous will to create an environment that's psychologically safe for kids where you're establishing boundaries for them. You know, I have boundaries for my son. Um, as he's aging, I'm realizing that um, my role as a mother, as a protector has shifted and now I'm an advisor. And I can say, I'd like you not to be on more than two hours a day doing gaming. But I can't say, oh, you're doing three hours a day, you're punished, um, because that is going to keep him further from me. And what I want is to have him know that I trust his judgment. Now, do I trust his judgment? I want to trust his judgment. I have no idea. I have no idea if he's actually doing homework or on. I mean, it's just because remote learning has caused this thing. I have no idea. And really, actually, last Wednesday... I was having lunch with a friend who said, Jennifer, you need to have more trust. And I said, oh, I know. I need to trust my son more. He goes, no, you need to trust yourself more. He's 15, and he's been living with you for 15 years. You have to trust that what you've modeled is enough. You need to give him space, and you need to trust yourself more as a model. And that, honestly, I'm almost about, you know, that just meant so much to me because I really don't know what my, you know, my son is dealing with. And I, I have no idea how these kids, um, 
that grew up on Minecraft and are going through all this stuff that have to have the skills of a college student. You know, if I think of what he had to go through in middle school with COVID is having to manage his schedule at the same skill level as a college student. It's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I see that with mine too. Mine are, are younger. Um, but I, I saw their struggle the last year and a half when we were when we switched to virtual. And, you know, as, as it, it, it's, it's a hard time being a parent, gosh, uh, and kudos to you and your friend. She's absolutely right. You need to trust yourself more. I think that is a sentiment we need to echo with with everyone with everyone. Because right. we don't know what others are going through. We don't see the other side of it. And so all we can do is just to trust that we have done enough, that what we've done is enough. Um, so, you know, switching, switching topic, you mentioned just a little bit earlier that you were teaching at RIT. I am very, very curious. Um, how did that get started? And, and how is that going? I did um, yeah. see that that picture that that you shared on social before on asking oh, students yes. how they define yeah i was when i was going through so things cool. i saw it was really really right. cool so how did that get started i mean thinking about exploration and innovation it is a really interesting title especially for for a technical university i went to rpi so it's oh, very similar to oh, rit nice. very right. very similar right uh, so yeah. tell us more yeah. So, um, so one thing on the comment earlier, um, the, the, the person, um, my friend actually was a man. And the only reason I want to make Oops. that question is that he bias. Sorry. Well, oh, that's just it. like, I think, I think we have to be cognizant for bias on both sides. Um, and so what he said is you as a mother, um, do not know what his journey is. And I can just tell you, you need to trust yourself more. Be, and just, you know, it's just kind of a, um, which was beautiful because I wonder um, growing up in a fairly feminist household with two other sisters and, and a mother that's pretty out loud about women and women funding and disparity, um, how he is interpreting that as a man and, you know, his own journey to self-respect. And I know this isn't all about parenting, so I'll now switch to... Um, the neatest thing about the opportunity that came for me at RIT is pretty much what's happened to me all of my life as um, what what got me to Cybos is the same thing that got me to RIT is that I was talking to someone and they said, you really think differently. Why don't you come and speak here? Or could you create a class for that? You know what I mean? So it literally is the... It, it sounds so cliche, but if you're on your question and you're rigorously seeking what it is that you're seeking, when you're around people, if they're interested in what you're doing, they will open up doors for you and they will welcome you um, without effort. It's like, you know, most of the places I've ever been, I've been invited. I cannot agree with that more. I think that that's very, very true. Looking back at my own journey and um, all of the changes I've made in my career, except for probably the first job that I had, I applied for. Everything else was through 
people who know me and people yeah. say, hey, you know, I think it would be wonderful if you would come do X. And I, I just I just really like that because it shows power of relationships, the power of humans elevating each other. You don't necessarily need an algorithm to sift through and to guess what it is that you can do or cannot do. That's what humans are best to do. And so on the topic of that, I, I wanted to ask you, because there has been quite a few reports <laughs> understanding, oh that has been talking about the the reach of the big technology companies, right? That has dominated everything that we do practically. Most of these are based in the United States. There has been a lot of debates about whether or not they're good or bad for us. And, you know, is it too much power for some of these companies and what we should do? Are they stifling innovation? Are they helping? Curious to hear what your thoughts on that and how do you think the space will change in the next few years? So um, one of the most wonderful quotes um, that I've ever heard about um, about this question comes from Anderson Horowitz. He said, the battle between every startup and incumbent comes down to whether the startup gets distribution before the incumbent gets innovation. Um, so there... You know, if you think of, um, so I'm in the land of Kodak, Xerox, Bausch & Lomb, right? In Rochester, New York, there were some of the very first conglomerate companies founded, right? And at that time, um, George Eastman was in his 20s. I think people forget that he was, you know, he could have been Brad Feld, <laughs> you know, if that was the thing at that time. So so I, I believe that there are, distributed and decentralized innovators that have platforms and not platform by subscription, but platform by community that if they can just continue to get clarity and get um, their army of believers and participants mobilized, um, I don't think we will fix the big tech question that's happened throughout history. But I think in addition to that trajectory, the other trajectory are um, really good ideas that have um, micro mobility and, um, and macro reach. And it goes back to the, the point of community that you're talking about. And it reflects some of the trends that we've been seeing, too, for the last two years in terms of financial services and a lot of the new startups that come about. They focus around the, the micromobility of communities, right? What it means to create a certain solution for that community, what it is that they need and what can we do for them? And I, I, I like those because you're actually solving a real need for people who, you know, oftentimes have been ignored or forgotten by a lot of what incumbents do. Yes. And, you know, to your point, it's so lovely talking to you. I, I wish we could do it more because um, I really feel um, deep, deep values connection. Um, if you think about the, the way um, 
the United States uses mobility is very different than how Africa uses mobility. Like people are literally saving lives in whole communities through their use of mobility, right? Um, and we've had the luxury in the United States to have it be more of an additive, um, you know, um, more of a luxury utilization or a pastime utilization. And so my belief of um, now that um, more and more information is getting distributed through some of the third world countries, their um, hunger, like literal hunger to make a difference with climate crisis, hunger to save the world. Um, you know, I think, I think they will, they will have new layers of um, tipping points and traction. Um, I'm so hopeful that's true um, for very many reasons. Yes, indeed. And that leads me to the last question I want to ask you before we close. It's around ideas, is around the ability for good ideas to be funded, not just because they're good ideas, but unfortunately in the reality we live in is also dependent on the network. It's also dependent on the color of your skin, dependent mm. on your gender, what school you go to, what zip code you grew up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I feel like we're making two steps forward, three steps back, or perhaps even five steps backwards. It's depressing. I'm trying not to be depressed, but it is depressing. Is it just a matter of time? We finally will get there sooner or later, maybe perhaps in about 200 something years, or should we just double down on something? What, what, what can we do more? What are we not doing enough? So I, you know, these are the, the reason I love your podcast so much is the questions you ask are the kinds of questions that I lose sleep over. Um, I, I think from a, uh, you know, I am um, a Caucasian woman. Um, I'm, I'm lucky and privileged in ways that I really didn't know even three to four years ago how privileged I was because I was feeling underprivileged. You know, I was feeling that I couldn't get funding. I couldn't get all these other things. So, so what I, what I have to say is that um, we have to get better modeling in front of us. Um, you know, for instance, I get so upset when I see a Kindle and the Kindle has a boy reading, right? I'd love to see it be many different um, Asian children reading, African-American children reading, boys and girls, um, you know, androgynous, whatever. The, the unconsciously, when we see people doing things, we then are able to say, it's possible for me too, right? So, so we need to continue to accelerate our storytelling and make sure that we get in front of all the diversity of our children, models that look like them. Um, and the idea that, um, you know, like the Chloe Capital is a fund, it's a, a fund in upstate New York for female founders. Um, it costs $100,000 to participate. You know, when I've had some life situations where I had access to $100,000, I didn't have the know-how to say, oh, why don't I fund other businesses? There were fewer, you know, and I can say now I, 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 I you know, I don't have that option now because I've got other other challenges but what i'm saying is the idea that there's many ways you can put your money in an investment and that by the way you can actually invest in other people that's an idea that i didn't have access to even a decade ago that wasn't in my community right and now 
um, you know, everyone's being exposed to Shark Tank. Now there's high school programs that are showing funding, you know. So, so the, I guess the answer to your question, three things. Um, we need to ensure that the modeling is reaching an audience that sees someone that says, I can see myself do that. The second is that we actually absolutely need to aggregate our um, storytelling. Um, one of the reasons I wrote the Founders Upstate Playbook was that many people think of New York as New York City, right? My family, when I moved from Denver, thought I was moving to New York City. They didn't know that upstate New York was this beautiful place that rivals Colorado in hiking and biking and, you know, beauty. Um, and, and we, you know, if you think of Buffalo through Albany as a region, right, it's really, it's really just um, a 300 mile radius. If those stories, if these founders could, can collaborate and tell their stories and get more and more funding, you know, unfortunately people that fund ideas are very risk averse. They'll only bet on a winning horse, right? So what we have to do is we have to actually, and a lot of our winning horses aren't great at marketing because they're busy doing the work, right? So, um, so access to modeling and then second to access to stories. And then, and then really uh, you are just a wonderful person to follow because you're always showing about inequity. You're always showing where VCs ask different questions to men versus women, you know, where we can make visible biases, we need to make them more visible and help people train to handle the bias that they will have. I don't believe we'll eradicate bias. I think we will make people better armed at how to handle it and how to advocate and how to connect and using their networks. Um, I had almost prepared more about like what gets in the way of women. I believe that women are judged differently than men and I think many women are afraid to ask for help um, because they're afraid to be judged. And sometimes we actually are, you know. And so being able to be asking people for help sometimes costs more work than actually doing it ourselves. And so we, you know, we have to work together to ask for more help and, and also be stronger in um, handling rejection. And then also... Um, more forceful in um, like we're trained to be polite. You know, we have to learn how to put on boxing gloves. Um, so I think those three um, things I described um, will will add to a tipping point, um, but we need to um, all hands on deck. All hands on deck indeed. And invest in others and invest in yourself. There are so many, so many good takeaways from this conversation. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I'm going to have a lot of fun putting the notes together for the show. Um, and for those who want to follow you and follow your writing, where can they find you? Yeah, for sure. LinkedIn is, you know, and anyone that's interested in any um, entrepreneurship opportunities in upstate New York, please reach out to me. I'm a really good conduit for um, a lot of the um, startup competitions in the region. So LinkedIn is a great place. And then as you know, um, I literally am on Twitter two hours a day. Um, I have been since 2009 and it's a really great part of my practice. Um, and so please also find me on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for spending time with us today. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>